What a blessing to be in the house of God this morning and to hear your wonderful hymn singing and to hear this powerful message of grace from our dear brother Coker. The word of his grace, the message of grace. Do you, did you hear the message of grace this morning? It is truly a joyful sound. I don't know a better message in the world. Grace is a charming sound. I love Brother Josh and am so encouraged with his ministry. He's uh, one of my favorites, one of my favorite preachers. Uh, I sure enjoy him and appreciate his studious mind and his tender heart. And that's a rare combination, but it's necessary in the gospel ministry. I think this is the third meeting we've preached together, isn't that right? We call ourselves Mutt and Jeff. <laughs> Some of you kids don't know what I'm talking about, but anyway, he's about seven five and I'm about four feet six, so <laughs> Mutt and Jeff. But uh, anyway, I always enjoy hearing him preach and visiting with him and I can say the same for your dear pastor. He's been one of my mentors and protégés, or one of my uh, mentors and models through the years. And I sure appreciate uh, his uh, ministry. Good substantive pulpit content is what you have here at Bethel Church. And I'm thankful for that. Thankful to see Brother Tim's growth. Enjoy Brother John Harrison's ministry, each of the ministers that are here. I'm thankful for each one of you. I'm a lover of good men. You know, that's one of the criteria for the gospel ministry. They're to be lovers of good men. And I love the servants of God, and especially those that are faithful in the word and in their spirits. I do want to say something about uh, my appreciation to this church for your participation in, in your prayers and your support of Grace Alone Radio. Um, it's very humbling to see how the church here has participated. One brother donated several thousand dollars of audio equipment when we first started with this project about uh, four and a half, five years ago. One brother from this church donated, made a significant donation of audio equipment. Another brother uh, put our advertisement in the Tennessean. I don't know how much good that did, but who knows? We're seed sowers, <laughs> right? We are seed sowers. We don't guarantee the harvest. We don't know. We don't gauge the harvest, but we sow seed. Throw it out there, and God gives the increase. I think this brother also tried to get us on uh, Sirius XM radio, but they were not interested in uh, even responding, but I appreciated his zeal. Another brother sends out our little brochures each month to every electric bill or, you know, he gets a bill in from, uh, or gets mail, junk mail in, he'll take the no postage necessary, you know, postage paid envelope, he'll stick a Grace Alone <laughs> uh, flyer in there and send it back, you know, so somebody is going to open it and say, well, what is this? He sends out uh, scores, I think uh, perhaps in the last couple of months, over 200. 
So if you send this brother any mail, expect to get a Grace Alone uh, brochure back in the mail. But I just appreciate your encouragement, your prayers, and part of the success of our programming is your pastor's on there every weekday, uh, three or four times each weekday at different times of the day. And um, I feel very honored to be able to present such good substantive and sound biblical content on uh, the radio each day. So I do want to say how much we appreciate your sacrifice, your encouragement, your financial support, your prayers for our efforts. This morning, uh, call your attention to Hebrews chapter 11 and the 21st verse. Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter of the Bible. The roll call of the faithful. Verse 21. By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. If you're familiar with Hebrews 11, this verse seems a little out of place. It seems a little anticlimactic. It's just not quite as exciting as the verses that you read before it and after it. I mean, this chapter describes people like Enoch, who walked with God for 300 years. And he was translated, by faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. That's his, if he had had an epitaph, if he had had a tombstone, which he didn't because he went to heaven without dying. But his motto, the summary of his life is, he pleased God. What a tremendous thing to say about somebody, right? Enoch. It tells about Noah who spent 100 years building a massive ship, an ark, to keep his family safe during a global catastrophe when it had never rained. Noah endured the ridicule of the public. He endured the physical stress of preparation and labor. For 100 years, it took him to build this massive structure that was about the length of one and one-half football fields. I mean, it's, and it had never rained. Can you imagine what faith it took to do that? That's pretty stupendous, wouldn't it? In contrast to these men, we read Enoch, when uh, we read in our text, by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed his two grandsons and he worshiped leaning upon the top of his staff that is his walking stick his shepherd's staff his his cane it's not very exciting is it i suggest this text offers a snapshot of jacob's faith at the end of his life but unlike the others both before and after, here in Hebrews chapter 11, the example that he cites 
from Jacob's life is again anticlimactic. It's less than stellar. Furthermore, I would say this morning with no disrespect intended to Jacob, it seems to me that he just doesn't seem to be on the same level of valor and integrity and devotion to God as most of the other people in this chapter. In all candor, there's not a lot about Jacob's life that stands out as impressive, much less heroic in the list here of the heroes of faith. Like I said, Enoch walked with God for 300 years. Noah spent 100 years building a massive ship, the ark. Abraham deliberately let go of the security of his home for a promised future inheritance that did not yet exist. Abraham, leave everything you know for something that is to come, and I'll show you when you get there what it is. Can you imagine just walking away from a 20-room mansion, a career, all of your money, all of your friends and family, your high school alma mater, just walking away from it all into a land that he didn't even know where he was going, what faith it took to do that. That's pretty stellar. That's pretty impressive. What about Moses? Moses, we're told in this chapter, refused a life of unique privilege and a future political power. It's possible that Moses was second in line to take the throne of Egypt after Pharaoh's death. But Moses abandoned all of that. He grew up there in the palace, but he let it all go to align himself with people that were at that very moment slaves. And he devoted the remainder of his life to leading this pesky group of refugees through the wilderness in spite of their murmuring and complaining. That took a lot of faith. What about Joshua? He's mentioned in this chapter, at least by inference, he led the nation in the conquest of Canaan. Jericho was conquered under Joshua's leadership. Again, very impressive. What about the youthful David? He's mentioned by inference as well in this chapter. He faced off with the champion of the Philistine giant named Goliath. And he slew him with a sling and a stone. Or Daniel. This chapter speaks of those who stopped the mouths of lions. No doubt that's a reference to the story of Daniel. He spent a restful night in a den of hungry lions rather than compromise his commitment to the only true and living God. Daniel, I say, my friends, was a man of faith. I call these people like Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Daniel leapers. Leapers. There's a text in Psalm 1829 that reads as follows. By my God, I have run through a troop and by my God, I have leaped over a wall. I'm a fan of track and field. I used to enjoy participating in that when I was a youth. I still enjoy watching track and field. And one of the things that has always impressed me are the leapers, the pole vaulters, who can leap over 
the pole, you know, the high jumpers, the long jumpers, the hurdlers, that while they're running, they leap. Well, the psalmist said, I was a pole vaulter. By my God, I have pole vaulted over the wall. <laughs> now, that must have been quite a feat to behold, to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Can you do that? Can you leap tall buildings in a single bound? Are you a leaper? Are you a mighty person of valor and integrity and devotion to God? Does your life bear the signature of the likes of people like Noah and Abraham and Moses? Have you ever done anything spectacular for God? David says, by my God, I have leaped over a wall. I have run through a troop. I call these people leapers. I suggest that the biography of Jacob in the Bible, though, is not even really remotely similar to the leapers. Jacob doesn't appear to be a leaper, does he? In fact, Jacob is more of a limper. A limper. Jacob, if you please, uh, was not an impressive man of faith. In fact, let me ask you the question, why is the only event of his life mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 something that happened at his final hour when he was dying? It's like, it, isn't there something else you could have said about Jacob? But by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, he blessed his two grandsons and he worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. And the reason... I suggest that the only event that is mentioned in Hebrews 11 in this hall of faith is an episode at the very end of his life is because Jacob's story is likely closer to where many of us live than the other more dramatic examples that are cited in this chapter. I suspect that you and I can identify more with Jacob than we can with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses and with David and Daniel. Have you ever slain a giant? Have you ever stopped the mouths of lions? Have you ever spent a night with, in a den of hungry lions? Have you ever, my friends, abandoned everything you knew for an unknown future, trusting in God? Have you ever led a pesky group of ragtag Bedouins through the desert and crossed through a River, a, a mighty sea on dry ground and led them and saw them fed for 40 years in the world. Have you ever done anything that spectacular? I suspect most of us are just ordinary folk, don't you? I am. Most of us are not celebrities, superstars. We're not heroes of faith. In fact, we're not leapers at all. Now, some of God's people are, in fact, leapers. Like, the, there are some Moseses. Maybe you have done something spectacular. Maybe you have shown uncommon valor, uncharacteristic faith at a time of great crisis. But I suspect that most of us, again, are closer aligned with Jacob, who was a limper. For this man made little to no progress in his life for many, many years. And then it 
was only when some great crisis touched his life that he made any progress at all. I feel a special kinship to Jacob this morning because I too am a work in progress, a work in process. You know, around each of our necks, we could hang a sign that says, be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. Or perhaps under construction, you've seen those signs. You're under construction, or slow men working. You know, punctuation matters, doesn't it? <laughs> if you put the comma in the wrong place, it'll say slow men working. <laughs> but if you put it slow, comma, men working, and you say, well, I think slow men is more accurate. But, you know, I'm just... At this stage in my life, sometimes I look and I think, what have I really accomplished? Am I really making huge strides and big gains in the service of Jesus Christ? I've never had a problem with any birthday that I've ever experienced. But the last couple of years have been more challenging. When I turned 60, it sort of shocked me, it's surprising. And um, I realized that uh, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. Now, you, those of you who are in your 80s say you're still just a, a young'un, right? But those who are in your 30s would say you're an old codger, you're an old geezer. And, uh, but it was a bit surprising to me to turn that age and to realize that my life is passing me by, about two-thirds of my life probably is, is over, if not a little more. And it made me think about what small progress I've made in the service of the Lord. You ever thought about that? You ever thought, I'm not nearly as far along as I thought that I would be at this point? Brother Josh quoted the verse in 2 Samuel 23, 5, although my house be not so with God. That's something David said near the end of his life. Although my house be not so with God. What did he mean? There are several possibilities. But one possibility is that he's saying my life is not exactly what I thought it would be at this point. Have you ever been there? I wonder if there's anybody under the sound of my voice today who can identify with this thought that I really thought that I would be more devoted, more godly, that my life would have counted for the glory of God in greater degrees than it has at this point. But I feel like the hymn writer said, much of my time is run to waste. You ever feel like that? And I perhaps am near my home. The water under the bridge is more than what is in front of me. Much And what assurance that last phrase of, or sentence in the song says but he forgives my faulties past and gives me strength for days to come but here's the point that I make today some of God's people are indeed leapers I admire them but most of God's children are limpers through life like Jacob you say why do you call Jacob a limper well turn back with me just a moment to Genesis chapter 32, and I want to read you the narrative here of the fourth of Jacob's four encounters with God. 
Now, Jacob had four encounters with God during his personal history. And each point, each encounter was a point of crisis, was at a time of crisis in his life. His first encounter was in Genesis 28 at Bethel. And the crisis here was Esau had threatened to kill him. You remember the story that Jacob had stolen Esau's birthright and now he's stolen his blessing. And Esau, when he hears that Jacob has deceived his old blind father and gotten the blessing in his place, says, I'll kill him if it's the last thing I do. And Jacob's mom says, you better get out while the getting's good. That's the Michael Goins translation. And Jacob leaves home uh, on his own. This young man who had been somewhat pampered now can find nothing to sleep on the first night except a rock for his pillow. And at Bethel, he has this vision. God appears to him, you remember? And he sees the ladder stretched from earth to heaven and the top of it touches heaven, the bottom of it touches the earth and the angels of God are active on that ladder. They're coming down to, dis they've been dispatched to carry out some task or assignment and then they're going up. Once they finish that assignment, they're returning to get new orders. And there's a picture of constant activity. By the way, there's a connecting link between the unseen world, the invisible world of heaven, and the visible world in which we live, and it's called the providence of God. And the Lord uses angels as agents of his providence. What are angels? They're actual created beings that God made, and they are dispatched, they're used, employed in his service. To do his bidding, Hebrews 1.14 says, are they not all ministering spirits sent Forth, who sends them forth, God does, sent forth to minister to those who are the heirs of salvation. Who is that? It's God's children, you and me. So the angels are dispatched to minister to you and to me. And what Jacob sees on this occasion at Bethel in the first of four encounters with God is he sees a picture of providence, of God's involvement in his world. Aren't you glad to know God is involved in his world? Aren't you glad to know, my beloved, that God is not remote and disconnected and distracted and says, okay, you figure it out on your own. I'll see you when you get to heaven. The God who loved us and died for us and redeemed us is also interested in our lives day by day. He's involved in our lives. The hands that bled for me are the hands that provide all of my needs and yours as well. Yes, I rejoice in that wonderful truth. But Jacob sees this picture and he has this encounter with God. See, Esau has threatened to kill him and God comes to Jacob and Jacob says when he wakes up, this is the gate of heaven. This is the house of God. That's what the word Bethel means, Bethel. This is where God lives. And he said, and I knew it not. In other words, I was oblivious that Jacob, if you know his character, was a shyster. He was the quint this quintessential con artist. His name, Jacob, means trickster. 
heel catcher, supplanter. He was a fraud, a deceiver. This young man was, he operated by the motto, look out for old number one. The most important person in Jacob's life was whom? Jacob. Jacob was interested in Jacob. And he spent his life conning other people, hustling other people out of what belonged to them. And, you know, the first act that we see of him is he's clutching his brother's heel. In other words, you're not going to get ahead of me. I'm looking out for myself. As an infant, a preborn infant, he's clutching the heel. Jacob is, uh, is tricky. You can't trust him. Have you ever known anybody? Have you ever been somebody like that? Is there part of your nature that is somewhat deceptive, a little bit, just not quite honest? And you, you just like to, you know, you like to try to get an edge, an advantage. Jacob was that kind of person. Would you call that a character flaw? I would. By the way, we're all flawed human beings, aren't we? Jacob, his brother, finally got tired of it and said, I'm going to kill him. I mean, I don't blame Esau a lot. I mean, Jacob, the first time he deceived him, Esau had been hunting and he was hungry and Jacob had a mess of pottage. I don't know what that means. I think of soup and sandwich. And he says, Can, may I have something to eat? I'm famished. And Jacob says, uh, it'll cost you something. You know, he's always got an angle. I'll sell you a bowl of soup. He said, well, what do you want for it? He said, how about, your birth, how about your birthright? Now, the birthright meant that when dad died, the person who had the birthright was the new patriarch of the family. They were in charge. The right of, you know, birth order. The birthright meant that I have the right to manage the family and the entire inheritance is at my disposal to do with it as I please. That's the birthright. And Esau sold his future for one bowl of soup. How foolish. The book of Hebrews talks about that and says, Be not like Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. He gave away the future for temporary and present gratification. How many people are living for the moment without any concern for the long-term consequences or implications of their actions? But Jacob took advantage of it. He didn't lose a moment's sleep feeling guilty over it. And then the next time, of course, you know how he deceived Jacob. His mother helped him in this scheme in which he dressed up like Esau. And he came in with some goat meat that she had seasoned just right. Rebecca must have been a wonderful cook. Because Isaac, who had a, who was, had a sensitive palate, he knew what he liked. He loved that Fresh venison. He loved venison. He knew it, but she, he, he, thought, he said, oh, this is delicious. And he gave Jacob the blessing, which was the barakah, you know, the Jewish blessing. What a Jewish father would do when his children were dying, I mean, when he was dying, was he would gather his children around his bed, and he would pronounce a, a, a blessing, a benediction upon them in which he charted their future, basically. He said nice things about each one if it, was, if it was deserved, and he basically told them what he expected from them, you know, thus creating his own reality. 
You know, you parents have done that, haven't you? You've told your teenagers, now don't get in trouble, but here's what I expect. I expect that you know who you are and you know what you believe and that you're going to stand for your convictions. You know, you're, you're basically, you know, prophesying something positive, hoping to create your own reality, hope, hoping that they will think about that and comply and say, well, dad believes in me, mom believes in me, I'm going to do the right thing. Well, that's what a blessing was. And Jacob got the blessing. That's encounter with God number one at Bethel under the crisis of Esau's threat upon his life. The second encounter is in Genesis 31.3 at Haran. And the crisis is Uncle Laban has begun to suspect Jacob is hoodwinking him. He's deceiving him. Jacob had through some kind of genetic engineering and manipulation. He had figured out a way in the breeding of cattle to get certain cows with certain features that Laban had told him, I'll let you keep those cows. So Jacob has used genetic engineering to, uh, to get his own herd, and his flocks are growing, his herd is growing, and Laban's is diminishing, and Laban begins to suspect that he's taking everything from me. I mean, he was crafty, old Jacob. And is he really godly? Would you say Jacob was a godly young man? Now, he did say to God at Bethel, Lord, I'll give you a tenth of all that I earn if you will bless me. You think that's a good bargain? I mean, do you think Jacob is showing spiritual maturity? It's, it's better than being a God denier, but he's still not quite on board, right? He's bargaining with the Lord. And that's not a sign of spiritual maturity. I suggest Jacob seldom thought about God. His religion was all in his head. Jacob was interested in getting a leg up and a foot in the door and, you know, well... To make a long story short, at Haran, Laban is, is suspicious. God appears to Jacob again in Genesis 31, verse 13. And he says to Jacob on this occasion, let me read you the verse. I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointest the pillar, pillar, the same God that appeared to you back then, where thou vowest a vow unto me. That's the bargain that I mentioned. Now arise, get thee out from this land, return to the land of thy kindred. Now he's been gone for how long? 20 years? Is that right? He worked seven years for Rachel. He got Leah. Seven more years for Rachel. That's 14 plus six years in uncle. So he's been gone from home after Esau threatened to kill him for 20 years. Now Laban begins to think that Jacob is taking advantage of him. He's suspicious. God says to Jacob, you need to go home. Then the third encounter with God is in Genesis 32, verses 1 and 2 at Mahanaim, which means two bands, two armies. And um, it is here under the crisis, in the crisis of Uncle Laban's revenge. Laban has heard now that Jacob is gone. He's taken his wives. Laban has gathered an army to pursue him, that Jacob that God appears to Jacob and says, uh, I will protect you. He sees the angels. He has his own family with him, his own entourage, but he sees the angels on this occasion. But in Genesis 32, 
Now Esau, he gets the news that Esau has, is coming to meet him with a band of many soldiers. And we read these words, Jacob that night before he met Esau was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint. And he wrestled with him and he said, let me go for the day breaketh. And Jacob said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And the angel said to him, what is thy name? And he had to admit, my name is Jacob. Heel catcher, deceiver, fraud, con man. And the angel said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. God changes his name. Prince with God, for as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. And the story proceeds to where Jacob said, I've seen God face to face. My life is preserved. And he passed over Penuel and the sun rose upon him. And Jacob halted or limped upon his thigh. He wrestled, had this wrestling match with God. The angel is the angel of the Lord. A Christophany, uh, an appearance of Jesus Christ before the incarnation in the Old Testament. He has this wrestling match with God, and what happens is he's left with a limp. Now, he gets a blessing, but he, he's injured in the process of this battle. He leaves this place and limps with pain for the rest of his life. He's left with an injury, a broken man. The encounter with God has left him lame. Now I wonder if you've ever been like Jacob, thinking about myself, living for self, doing what I need to do to get a leg up, to get ahead, to, to get what is coming to me before somebody else gets it. I'm going to scheme, plot, scratch, claw, climb, do what I need to do to be successful in life, and then God comes and meets you, and you're left after this time of encounter with God, you're left with an injury. You're not the same person. You're a broken person now. But you see, the purpose of this limp is to remind Jacob on a daily basis that he was weak and that he needed the Lord. It takes God more effort, it appears, with some of us than it does with others. Has he ever taught you important lessons in life through your sufferings, through your afflictions? Do you have a limp today? I can think back on my life and I've had several moments of crisis. I can think back to a moment of crisis in my early 20s. I can think back to other crises in my life that have been life-changing, life-altering, and I knew that even though God is not the author of sin, I knew that he was still in control, and he has used those difficulties to make me realize that I don't have it all together. You know, when I was a young man, I thought that I was invincible. I could rule the world. I, the sky was the limit. You know, reach for the stars. Follow your dreams. You can make your life sublime. But God has taught me through my encounters with him that I'm weak, that I have needs, that I'm not all that. 
as the great coach for the Colorado Buffalo University Buffalo says, I'm not him. <laughs> and you're not either. I'm talking about Dion Sanders for some of you, you know. Anyway, Dion was going to have a great year, but I think he's been humbled a little bit. Have you ever been humbled? Have you ever been humbled? Has God ever brought you down a notch? You're not a leaper, you're a limper. But listen to our text. The story of Jacob ends with this interesting episode. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, the best thing that could be said about Jacob is something that happened in his final hour. The best of his life was when he was dying. Here's the point. Although Jacob made such small progress in his life, yet God faithfully and mercifully provided for him along the way. He kept him as the apple of his eye. He patiently worked in Jacob's life to break his stubborn will. Now at the end of his life, finally, we find him leaning and worshiping. The leaper, some of God's children are leapers. Most of God's people are limpers. All of God's children need to learn to be leaners. Have you learned to lean on the Lord, to depend on him? That's the posture that is appropriate for us all. Song of Solomon 8, 5 says, Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness? Leaning upon her beloved. The bride leans in dependence upon her beloved. Are you leaning on the Lord? You say, I don't need anything but myself. God has a way of teaching you better. And you're left with a limp through your trials, your difficulties, your heartaches, your sorrows in life. It leaves us with a limp, doesn't it? And it's all intended to teach us So, this lesson that we need to learn to lean on our beloved. The end of Jacob's life reveals a man that has, is finally submissive to God. No longer is he wrestling to have his own way. But he's totally dependent upon the Lord and he's humbly thankful for God's delivering mercy. My point this morning is it takes some of us longer to grow up spiritually than it does others. That seems to be the case. I'm a hard nut to crack. The Lord's been patient with me, but he's continuing to work on me. I'm not where I thought I would be at this point in my life. I thought I'd be much more consistent, much more useful, much more godly, much more influential. I still struggle with my old nature. Every once in a while I think, I've, I've already conquered that tendency, that carnal tendency. I've already conquered, I haven't been in trouble with that in years. And then something happens and it's back again and I think, what in the world? I've made zero progress. You ever feel like that? I'm just a, I'm just a limper. Serving the Lord by fits and starts, hobbling my way through this world inconsistently, but my heart is good. I want to do better, but I am learning that I need to lean on him. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on thine own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. You know what trust, what faith is? It's learning to lean. 
learning to lean. Years ago, I was homeschooling my oldest daughter and was trying to teach her what trusting God meant. And uh, she wasn't getting the abstract idea, trusting God. So I came up with this illustration. I got down on my knees, shoulder to shoulder with her, and I said, I want you to lean on my shoulder. And as you're leaning, I'm going to move slightly to the right. And don't be afraid, I'm going to support you, but you keep leaning. And what happened as I inched my way over, her incline, her angle of incline became increasingly precarious to the point that if I were to move suddenly, she would have fallen. And I asked her, I said, what would happen if I moved? And she said, I would fall, Daddy. Then I asked the question, do you think I'm going to move? And she said, no, I know you wouldn't hurt me. My friends, have you learned to put all your weight, to lean all your life on the Lord? You say, well, how can I trust him? He won't hurt you. He loves you. He's never made a mistake. He's the God of grace who took care of the likes of Jacob and he'll take care of you and me. And even if it's at my dying hour that I finally learn to lean, by faith, while I'm dying, I say, well, Lord, take care of my grandchildren and I'm just going to worship you. If that's what it takes for me, I'm, I still hope one day I'll be the person I ought to be. What I've been talking about this morning is practical sanctification. It's different than regeneration. That's when you're born again. God does that instantaneously. But growing in grace, becoming more Christ-like, growing towards spiritual maturity is a progressive thing. It takes a long time. And God help each one of us to be more consistent, to be more stable, to be more useful in his service. More holiness give me. More love to thee, O Christ. Purer in heart, O God, help me to be. Even if it takes till my dying hour, may he find me worshiping, leaning upon the top of my staff. May God add his blessings this morning.